Thank you for joining us on this program. It is provided by Medeticus and supported by an educational grant from Bausch & Lomb. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements and the learning objectives. You can find them linked in the description or on the activity page of our website, courses.medeticus.com. There, you can also claim your free CME credit. Hello, and welcome to another Medeticus CME CE podcast discussing evaporative dry eye, incorporating new treatments into practice. I'm Dr. Ken Beckman, and I am a cornea specialist in Columbus, Ohio. Also with me today is Dr. Jackie Garlick, who is an optometrist in Boston, Massachusetts, and president of Glance by Eyes on Eye Care. Hi, Ken. Thank you um, so much for joining me tonight as we talk about one of our favorite topics, evaporative dry eye. And one of the, I think, great things on, on learning about evaporative dry eye is doing case-based presentation. So I'm excited to share one case with you. And this is a case that I see pretty frequently on a, a day-to-day basis. My practice is in downtown Boston. And so I have a lot of patients who are just staring at computer screens all day. And so I'm going to present a case about this uh, 49-year-old woman who I saw. She had complaints of dry, irritated eyes while working on her computer. And this has been something that's been smoldering for years with her. But now it's worsening, and now she is bothered because it's impacting her, her vision and her work on the computer. Uh, her job, she's a data analyst, so she literally is just spending hours and hours staring at a computer screen all day. And she currently uses preserved artificial tears three to five times a day and was previously told to use warm compresses, but doesn't really remember to do this frequently. She's overall very healthy, takes no medications. Her exam, her vision is excellent with glasses. She's 20-20. Her slit lamp exam, however, she does have a lot of makeup debris, particularly on the lash line. She does have meibomian gland obstruction with severe gland atrophy. Uh, She has one plus vascularized lid margins in both eyes. Uh, Her conjunctiva, she does have uh, one plus lid wiper epitheliopathy, and she does have some lysamine green staining nasal and temporally in both eyes. She does have some mild SPK, one plus more notably inferior than elsewhere on her cornea. And her non-invasive tear breakup time is around three to four seconds. And she does also have a pretty normal tear meniscus height at 0.25 millimeters in the right, 0.29 in the left. She is symptomatic as she has already told us, but her speed score is 14. And testing on this day, her MMP9 was found to be positive in both eyes. So Ken, is this kind of a patient that you would see in your clinic? Does this sound like a, a common patient for you or are you seeing some other types? I see this all day, every day. Well, I should say this is a part of what I see every day. Absolutely. To summarize, there is just severe gland atrophy present on both the right and lower eyelid. So one of the things that I feel like is really helpful with the patient is just trying to figure out what their goals are. So a lot of patients will talk about dry eye, but sometimes if you improve them clinically, but they're still not able to do whatever it is that they want to do, you, although you feel like you succeeded in treating that patient, the patient doesn't feel like that. So when I'm treating a patient, I'm sort of like, what, what's your main goal here? What do we really want to improve? Ideally everything. But in this particular patient, she wanted less dryness and irritation while working. That was really the thing that like brought her in the most. 
So for her treatment, I I wanted her to clean up her lids a little bit better. So having this makeup debris, which on the previous photo, you can kind of see there's some mascara and liner on this lower eyelid margin on this myography image. So I wanted her to really do a better job cleaning that off. And so I recommended her to start using these micellar lid wipes to really help remove that makeup. That's a known irritant. And sometimes she admitted not removing her makeup at night and something Sometimes we're our own problem, right? We're not, you know, we're staring at computer screens all day. We're not removing our makeup. We're using lash serum. Sometimes we're making our own problem worse. So I really wanted her to sort of clean those up a little bit better. I did also, because she had this keratitis, started her on Lodopredinol four times a day for two weeks in both eyes. And then for her, she's got a lot of meibomian gland atrophy and a reduced tear breakup time. So we know she's really evaporating very quickly. So I also added perfluorohexaloctane uh, four times a day for her in both eyes. And I told her to follow up in six weeks. So Ken, what are your thoughts on this initial treatment um, that I've you know presented here for this patient? Something right. similar? Would you do something different? You know, it's funny. There's so many, so many ways to approach this. I think this is a perfect way to start. And quite honestly, the biggest hurdle I have is uh, insurance coverage. So that often dictates what my first line treatment would be. But if I could miraculously have every drop available and not have to worry about it, I think this is a great way to start because you're pulling off the inflammation and you're providing the PFHO, which uh, should really be helpful for the evaporative component. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you and I've spoken about this before is, you know, when we're sort of talking about what treatment we're going to give a patient, it's sort of like, well, I think the insurance is probably going to be the one that tells us what, you know, immunomodulator or what eye drop or even nasal spray can we be using first. So uh, it's a good point. But in, in this case, um, she was able to get this. So I followed up in six weeks with her. Um, I saw her on purpose as a late afternoon appointment because I wanted to see what does this patient look like after she has been staring at her computer screen all day. She reported she's been using the PFHO, but she's been using it mostly twice a day to three times a day. She's not quite getting in the four doses. And uh, vision is still excellent. Her makeup debris is better. So I applauded her on that. She's doing a better job removing some of her makeup. She does still have meibomian gland obstruction. She does still have gland atrophy. This isn't surprising. These things aren't miraculously better just because we do a couple of things. And her she does still have this vascularization on her lid margins. Um, she does have some improved lid wiper epitheliopathy. She does have some conjunctival stain that's present there, but both of these things have improved along with her keratitis. So that is now just rare SPK that I'm that I'm noting. And her non-abrasive tear breakup time has improved. She's now about seven to eight seconds, and she feels better. So she's certainly happier. Her speed score is now a seven. So that's a pretty drastic improvement. And her MMP9 at follow-up is still faintly positive. So, you know, at this point, I'm saying, you know, this patient is pretty happy. Her clinical scores have improved and she's looking better. You know, do I stop here? Do we continue addressing this severe gland atrophy and this vascularized lid margins? What do you do for a patient like this? Do you feel like we've succeeded or do we need to um, press on? Well, I, I think that there's there's two things about, actually three things to talk about. One is I like to have them have something in their back pocket for acute flares because that's going to happen. So I probably would have them keep the little prednol around and let them know that they may be able to use it on intermittent intermittent uh, treatments. 
But the second thing is they have to understand this is kind of like if you injure your shoulder and go into physical therapy and you get it fixed, it's not a permanent fix. You got to stay with your good habits or this is going to come back. So I like the idea of continuing with whatever you're doing and making sure they understand it. And then the third thing is, have you really even gotten over the hump or is there more to do? And I, as I'm looking at this and gauging by what I know of you and what you're probably going to do, I suspect you are going to go to another step. And I like both of these options, either addressing the meibomian glands or and or an, an anti-inflammatory chronic dry eye type regimen. I think those are great. And I would probably do something along those lines. Yeah, I, I think um, really trying to get more uh, the, to the root of the problem here. Let's try to address these vascular lid margins. So I talked to her about doing intense pulse light. And then, you know, we still have a positive MMP9. So we know there's still inflammation present. Yes, she's better. So she feels very happy. But you're right. Sometimes we're, you know, teetering on the edge and it will take one, you know, bad weather day or allergy season to tip these patients back over into being symptomatic. And I kind of explain that to a patient, like, you know, we're trying to bring you down to a normal level. So these little, these little things that might tip you over aren't as big of a deal. So yeah, I, I've talked to her um, about, you know, doing IPL to try to help the lid margin and then also potentially doing an immunomodulator. She, you know, uh, both good and bad, she was happy. So she didn't want to do anything else. She said, you know, I feel like I'm doing well with how, you know, how I'm doing. I said, okay, that's fine. We'll, we'll kind of press on with um, where you are now. But, but yeah, this is, this is a, a common case that I think both you and I and many of our colleagues see. We know there are a lot of um, triggers for dry eye disease. We have talked about this in, in some of our conversation already. But when we have meibomian gland obstruction, meibomian gland dropout, this starts our whole cascade of um, issues in terms of tear film and inflammatory issues. We will get these, you know, very salty tears, this hyperosmolarity that results in inflammation. And there's all these different treatment options aimed at targeting this sort of cascade and this uh, cycle of inflammation and meibomian gland dysfunction. So intense pulse light, we touched a little bit about that. This was originally developed for use in dermatology and is still pretty widely available at termed photofacials in med spas for acne rosacea patients. This was initially developed in 1983. And the way that this works, there's high intensity light that's absorbed by oxyhemoglobin in these superficial telangiectasias. And the way that I relate this to patients is I say, these little superficial blood vessels should not be there. And they are the highways for inflammation. So inflammation is brought to the tissue because of these little superficial vessels. So using IPL intense pulse light essentially coagulates these little superficial vessels and then sort of blocks our highway for all this inflammation. The Toyos protocol is uh, uh, talking about a, a, a protocol where we're using tragus to tragus pulses and then certainly around the eyelid as well. And IPL therapy for MGD can improve tear film stability, meibomian gland functionality, and subjective feeling of ocular dryness. This has been well-studied and well-published, and this is one particular study showing intense pulse light uh, for as a treatment for meibomian gland disease, and it showed that signs and symptoms in MGD improved after IPL. So there's, there's many uh, studies out there showing the, the benefits and the efficacy for IPL for patients. But 
IPL is one treatment for my belly gland dysfunction. What are you using a lot in your practice, Ken? You're using some thermal expression. How do you um, sort of target my bowel gland disease? Yeah, I do a um, couple things. I do use um, thermal pulsation, which I think can be very effective. And then I also have a uh, thermal treatment without pulsation that I will then express at the end that I think that both of those are really helpful. It's a slightly different mechanism, but you're really heating up and softening the the junk that's in their lids. And then you're, once you get the juices flowing, it may continue for a period of time. And so during those first several days, in fact, I tell the patients, they're going to notice a lot of this goop is going to be coming out and really be aggressive with continuing to do the heat at home and um, sticking with their protocol. And I think they can do really well, but I agree with you physically trying to do something to the architecture of the lid margins is so important. And someone like the patient that you showed with that mybography, where there's almost nothing left from her glands, there's a high likelihood that there's not going to be much that will get out with the lip of, you know, with a uh, thermal pulsation. It's certainly uh, nothing wrong with trying it and it feels good and you can get out what you can. And sometimes that's all you need. But I do try and set realistic expectations that these glands are cemented shut. They're not going to suddenly reform. Yeah. I do something similar in my practice. I have tear care, which is, um, you know, using heat to the eyelids and then, you know, manual expression after. And I feel that is very helpful for obstruction, um, as well as very satisfying to the practitioner doing the expression. <laughs> but oftentimes I'm combining these two things. I need IPL and I need some sort of obstruction um, removal. And so my, you know, point that I'm looking at uh, or that, that my deciding factor is when I'm looking at a lid, is it more inflamed or is it more obstructed? And then sort of, um, you know, making my treatment plan off of that. Right. So I'll pass it to you, Ken. You can talk to us about your your case. Thanks, Jackie. That was a really, really interesting case. And it and it uh, tip, uh, personifies what I see all day and what you're probably seeing all day as well in our office. So I'd like to talk about another case, which is almost like your patient 10 years later, as they've progressed through the system. This is a 60-year-old woman who happens to have a history of LASIK surgery previously, also complaining of chronic dryness, irritation, and her main thing was photophobia. In Over the years, she's tried cyclosporin droughts, but she was intolerant to these. She's been on lefitograss for a long time, and she does get partial relief. She also gets frequent intermittent flares and has been using fluoromethylone drops in short pulses. Uh, the fluoromethylone seems to put out the fire, but it's gotten to the point where she almost can't stop it anymore. So we wanted to try some other, some other methods. She uh, went on to try varenicline nasal spray. She happened to not get much improvement with that. So one of the things that we that I then like to do frequently, and this actually really helped her, was the fitting of a scleral lens. And I assume you may be doing, doing scleral lenses in your practice. I find that some of our patients with chronic dry eye and severe, um, almost like the ocular fibromyalgia type symptoms, ocular neuralgia, they do really well with scleral lenses. And this patient was one of those. So when she had her contact lenses on, she felt perfect. But the minute she took them out, she's back to how she was before she needed to wear sunglasses, even, even in the house. So as I look back on her, we really were trying to approach her in multiple, multiple ways, because there's multiple points on the vicious circle that are causing this. We are approaching 
the inflammatory component by using immunomodulators for sort of a chronic treatment and steroids for the acute putting out the fire. We tried the varenicline to stimulate tear production, trying the scleral lens, which helps more from an exposure type thing. It's, it's just incredibly comforting how it keeps the, uh, the tear film on the cornea. But even with all of these, we're not able to get to where we needed to be. So she came in to see me on an exam recently, and she was having significant irritation photophobia. When she came in with her contact lenses on, she had excellent vision. She was comfortable. But to do the exam, she needed to take the contacts out, obviously. And, she, you know, her main concern is we got to get you off these steroids. You're using steroids indefinitely, and obviously there's known risks. Ordinarily on patients like this, I like to give a drop of um, a topical anesthetic, and it really seems to cool them off to let me get through through the treatment. Sometimes I like the, using this as a test because we'll find patients who have a neuropathic pain syndrome. They don't seem to respond to the anesthetic like a uh, just a superficial dry eye with staining and all that does. But in this particular patient, I happened to try a sample of PFHO, which I happened to have just had just recently received and put it in her eyes. And the thing about it is, if you've ever seen the texture, I know you have, Jackie, it's got a um, silky, almost silicone-y feeling. And she put it in her eyes and was able to get through the exam. It seemed to give her enough comfort to keep her eye open and let me do the exam. So at that point, we decided to start PFHO, QID in both eyes, and kept on her current uh, regimen with the goal of trying to cut back on the steroids as tolerated. And she's found significant improvement in her ability to function when her contact lenses are out. So um, before I get on to the, to the um, discussion, I was just curious, Jackie, what your experience is for patients when they actually put this drop in their eye and how they tell you it feels. Yeah. Patients usually tell me like it feels oily, like an oil slick almost not oily as in blurring, although there's a little bit blur and a blur initially, but that it just feels like silky, like their lids are just gliding over their cornea. So that's the, probably the most common thing that I hear. And I myself have tried it as well and experienced the same thing. It just feels very like my blink is just so smooth. <laughs> it is. It's an, it's a neat feeling if you ha if someone hasn't tried it. And again, it, it's excellent at approaching evaporative dry eye, but it's not just approved for evaporative. It's really approved for all types of dry eye. And when you think about it, we approach um, inflammation at one location with anti-inflammatories, but by virtue of being downstream, this decreases evaporation, decreases irritation, which is what leads to um, inflammation. So it does sort of join in that circle in another location. I think that's really an important concept that you can have, just like glaucoma may be a multi-medication disease. And if a, if a drop lowers your pressure from 40 to 30, that doesn't mean it didn't work. It just means you need it lower and you need an additional drop. Same thing here. The patient was on uh, lefitograss and got improvement, but they weren't where they needed to be. And so we have to keep that mindset that you want to do multiple things and sometimes doing them in different areas to get to where you really, really need to, to go. And then one last question I asked you, Jackie, was about the continuous monitoring as far as like long-term on these complex patients. What's your experience for me? I've had to play around with these drops and go back and forth and, 
you know, I just wanted to see if you, what your experience is on some of these complex multi-medication patients. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I'm always, you know, taking multiple medications is it's in itself a burden to a patient, let alone having dry eye disease. And so, you know, the goal is for me to try to really stabilize a patient. And then, you know, if a patient is feeling overwhelmed, can we try to pull off a medication to make their life better? And so that they don't feel committed to this, this incredible regimen that we have them on. So it, it very much is sort of playing around with it and and really trying to first get the patient to a stable point and then see what you can do. And this is, again, where we, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier is really talking to the patient and listening to the patient. They are with their eyes all day long. So they know their irritants. They know what makes it better. They know what makes it worse. If I use this drop this time, it'll last me that way. So talking with the patient and really working on it together, you know, makes it a really a collaborative approach between you and the patient. I agree. And just just for um, clarity, that previous patient, I was by no means saying that one drop of PFHO was the cure-all. It was just more that we were adding an additional treatment to a complex of other treatments. And sometimes you just need to find the right combination to get where you need to be. So what do we know about PFHO? It actually forms a monolayer at the air-tier interface. It is a what's called a semi-fluorinated alkane. It has a, an aerophobic component and a lipophobic component. So when it gets on the eye surface, much like a buoy that you'd see in the water that automatically orients itself with one part sticking up and one part st sticking in the water, that's what happens here. And it's, it forms this monolayer right on the surface as a barrier for evaporation. So what it's doing is it's mimicking the actions of the natural lipids. We know it inhibits the evaporation of saline by approximately 80% in vitro studies. And one of the interesting things is it lowers the surface tension. So what happens is the drop gets on the eye and it just spreads so smoothly and easily. And you can feel the friction reduction by having this um, monolayer on the surface. Now, real quickly to go through um, some of the clinical trials from the uh, Mojave um, and Gobi trials done for the approval of PFHO, we, we found that at day 57, which was the primary endpoint, a statistically significant improvement in both corneal fluorescein staining and the visual analog scale dryness score. Uh, ironically, or interestingly, I should say, at day 15, they also reached significance in both of these. So it was quite impressive um, how well this worked early on in both of these uh, criteria. We know it's well tolerated. There were very few um, adverse events, very few non-ocular adverse events. None of them were considered to be related to the treatment. And the rest of the safety assessments were also unremarkable. So some of the thoughts um, to, to really manage this condition and to have effective management, it has to be a tailored approach. Compliance and education are really critical. And we already spoke about how hard it is to get patients to comply and how hard it is to get them to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. They need ongoing monitoring and we need to be able to adjust on the fly over time, not just based on patient needs, but based on what the government tells us we have to do and what the insurance companies sometimes tell us we have to do. And we have to be nimble enough to come up with a strategy when, um, when we're forced to change. 
And again, it's a combined team effort between the patients and the providers. So this concludes our session. It was really uh, great to share with you, Jackie. And uh, I hope you all enjoyed the discussion. To receive your free CME credit, complete the questions and evaluation via the link in the description or on our website, courses.medeticus.com. There, you can also contact us for suggestions and feedback on our programs. Thank you for listening.